Section 17 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 3, Part 1. 3. Minna. Four or five months before these events, Frau Josephs von Kerich, widow of Councillor Stefan von Kerich, had left Berlin, where her husband's duties had hitherto detained them, and settled down with her daughter in the little Rhine town in her native country. She had an old house with a large garden, almost a park, which sloped down to the river not far from Jean Christophe's home. From his attic, Jean Christophe could see the heavy branches of the trees hanging over the walls, and the high peak of the red roof with its mossy tiles. A little sloping alley, with hardly room to pass, ran alongside the park to the right. From there, by climbing a post, you could look over the wall. Jean Christophe did not fail to make use of it. He could then see the grassy avenues, the lawns like open meadows, the trees interlacing and growing wild, and the white front of the house with its shutters obstinately closed. Once or twice a year a gardener made the rounds and aired the house, but soon nature resumed her sway over the garden, and silence reigned over all. That silence impressed Jean Christophe. He used often stealthily to climb up to his watchtower, and as he grew taller, his eyes, then his nose, then his mouth reached up to the top of the wall. Now he could put his arms over it if he stood on tiptoe, and in spite of the discomfort of that position, he used to stay so, with his chin on the wall, looking, listening, while the evening unfolded over the lawns its soft waves of gold, which lit up with bluish rays the shade of the pines. There he could forget himself, until he heard footsteps approaching in the street. The night scattered its scents over the garden, lilac in spring, acacia in summer, dead leaves in the autumn. When Jean Christophe was on his way home in the evening from the palace, however weary he might be, he used to stand by the door to drink in the delicious scent, and it was hard for him to go back to the smells of his room. And often he had played, when he used to play, in the little square with its tufts of grass between the stones before the gateway of the house of the Kerichs. On each side of the gate grew a chestnut tree a hundred years old. His grandfather used to come and sit beneath them and smoke his pipe, and the children used to use the nuts for missiles and toys. One morning as he went up the alley he climbed up the post as usual. He was thinking of other things and looked absently. He was just going to climb down when he felt that there was something unusual about it. He looked towards the house. The windows were open, the sun was shining into them, and, although no one was to be seen, the old place seemed to have been roused from its fifteen years' sleep, and to be smiling in its awakening. 
Jean-Christophe went home uneasy in his mind. At dinner, his father talked of what was the topic of the neighborhood, the arrival of Frau Kerich and her daughter with an incredible quantity of luggage. The Chestnut Square was filled with rascals who had turned up to help unload the carts. Jean-Christophe was excited by the news, which in his limited life was an important event, and he returned to his work trying to imagine the inhabitants of the enchanted house from his father's story, as usual, hyperbolical. Then he became absorbed in his work, and had forgotten the whole affair when, just as he was about to go home in the evening, he remembered it all, and he was impelled by curiosity to climb his watchtower to spy out what might be toward within the walls. He saw nothing but the quiet avenue, in which the motionless trees seemed to be sleeping in the last rays of the sun. In a few moments he had forgotten why he was looking, and abandoned himself, as he always did, to the sweetness of the silence. That strange place, standing erect, perilously balanced on the top of a post, was meat for dreams. Coming from the ugly alley, stuffy and dark, the sunny gardens were of a magical radiance. His spirit wandered freely through these regions of harmony, and music sang in him. They lulled him, and he forgot time and material things, and was only concerned to miss none of the whisperings of his heart. So he dreamed, open-eyed and open-mouthed, and he could not have told how long he had been dreaming, for he saw nothing. Suddenly his heart leaped. In front of him, at a bend in an avenue, were two women's faces looking at him. One, a young lady in black, with fine, irregular features and fair hair, tall, elegant, with carelessness and indifference in the poise of her head, was looking at him with kind, laughing eyes. The other, a girl of fifteen, also in deep mourning, looked as though she were going to burst out into a fit of wild laughter. She was standing a little behind her mother, who, without looking at her, signed to her to be quiet. She covered her lips with her hands, as if she were hard put to it not to burst out laughing. She was a little creature with a fresh face, white, pink, and round-cheeked. She had a plump little nose, a plump little mouth, a plump little chin, firm eyebrows, bright eyes, and a mass of fair hair plaited and wound round her head in a crown to show her rounded neck and her smooth white forehead, a Cranach face. Jean-Christophe was turned to stone by this apparition. He could not go away, but stayed, glued to his post, with his mouth wide open. It was only when he saw the young lady coming towards him with her kindly mocking smile that he wrenched himself away and jumped, tumbled, down into the alley, dragging with him pieces of plaster from the wall. He heard a kind voice calling him, "'Little boy!' and a shout of childish laughter, clear and liquid as the song of a bird. He found himself in the alley on hands and knees, and after a moment's bewilderment he ran away, as hard as he could go, as though he was afraid of being pursued. He was ashamed, and his shame kept bursting upon him again when he was alone in his room at home. After that 
he dared not go down the alley, fearing oddly that they might be lying in wait for him. When he had to go by the house, he kept close to the walls, lowered his head, and almost ran without ever looking back. At the same time, he never ceased to think of the two faces that he had seen. He used to go up to the attic, taking off his shoes so as not to be heard, and to look his hardest out through the skylight in the direction of the Kerich's house and park, although he knew perfectly well that it was impossible to see anything but the tops of the trees and the topmost chimneys. About a month later, at one of the weekly concerts of the Hofmusikverein, he was playing a concerto for piano and orchestra of his own composition. He had reached the last movement when he chanced to see in the box facing him Frau and Fraulein Kerich looking at him. He so little expected to see them that he was astounded and almost missed out his reply to the orchestra. He went on playing mechanically to the end of the piece. When it was finished he saw, although he was not looking in their direction, that Frau and Fraulein Kerich were applauding a little exaggeratedly, as though they wished him to see that they were applauding. He hurried away from the stage. As he was leaving the theatre he saw Frau Kerich in the lobby, separated from him by several rows of people, and she seemed to be waiting for him to pass. It was impossible for him not to see her, but he pretended not to do so, and, brushing his way through, he left hurriedly by the stage door of the theatre. Then he was angry with himself, for he knew quite well that Frau Kerich meant no harm. But he knew that in the same situation he would do the same again. He was in terror of meeting her in the street. Whenever he saw at a distance a figure that resembled her, he used to turn aside and take another road. It was she who came to him. She sought him out at home. One morning, when he came back to dinner, Louisa proudly told him that a lackey in breeches and livery had left a letter for him, and she gave him a large, black-edged envelope, on the back of which was engraved the Kerich arms. Jean-Christophe opened it, and trembled as he read these words. Frau Josepha von Kerich requests the pleasure of Hofmusikus Jean-Christophe Kraft's company at tea to-day at half-past five. "'I shall not go,' declared Jean-Christophe. "'What?' cried Louisa. "'I said that you would go.' Jean-Christophe made a scene, and reproached his mother with meddling in affairs that were no concern of hers. "'The servant waited for a reply. I said that you were free to-day.' You have nothing to do, then. In vain did John Christophe lose his temper and swear that he would not go. He could not get out of it now. When the appointed time came, he got ready, fuming. In his heart of hearts, he was not sorry that chance had so done violence to his whims. Frau von Kerich had had no difficulty in recognizing in the pianist at the concert the little savage whose shaggy head had appeared over her garden wall on the day of her arrival. She had made inquiries about him of her neighbors, and what she learned about Jean Christophe's family, and the boy's brave and difficult life, had roused interest in him, and a desire to talk to him. Jean Christophe, trussed up in an absurd coat, 
which made him look like a country parson, arrived at the house quite ill with shyness. He tried to persuade himself that Frau and Fräulein Kerrich had had no time to remark his features on the day when they had first seen him. A servant led him down a long corridor, thickly carpeted, so that his footsteps made no sound, to a room with a glass-panelled door which opened on to the garden. It was raining a little and cold. A good fire was burning in the fireplace. Near the window, through which he had a peep of the wet trees in the mist, the two ladies were sitting. Frau Kerrich was working, and her daughter was reading a book when Jean Christophe entered. When they saw him, they exchanged a sly look. They know me again, thought Jean Christophe, abashed. He bobbed awkwardly and went on bobbing. Frau von Kerrich smiled cheerfully and held out her hand. Good day, my dear neighbor, she said. I am glad to see you. Since I heard you at the concert, I have been wanting to tell you how much pleasure you gave me, and as the only way of telling you was to invite you here, I hope you will forgive me for having done so. In the kindly, conventional words of welcome there was so much cordiality, in spite of a hidden sting of irony, that Jean Christophe grew more at his ease. They do not know me again, he thought, comforted. Frau von Kerrich presented her daughter, who had closed her book, and was looking interestedly at Jean Christophe. "'My daughter Minna,' she said. "'She wanted so much to see you.' "'But, Mama," said Minna, "'it is not the first time that we have seen each other.' And she laughed aloud. "'They do know me again,' thought Jean Christophe, crestfallen. "'True,' said Frau von Kerrich, laughing too. "'You paid us a visit the day we came.' At these words the girl laughed again and Jean-Christophe looked so pitiful that when Minna looked at him she laughed more than ever. She could not control herself, and she laughed until she cried. Frau von Kerrich tried to stop her, but she, too, could not help laughing, and Jean-Christophe, in spite of his constraint, fell victim to the contagiousness of it. Their merriment was irresistible. It was impossible to take offense at it. But Jean-Christophe lost countenance altogether when Minna caught her breath again and asked him whatever he could be doing on the wall. She was tickled by his uneasiness, he murmured, altogether at a loss. Frau von Kerrich came to his aid and turned the conversation by pouring out tea. She questioned him amiably about his life. But he did not gain confidence. He could not sit down. He could not hold his cup, which threatened to upset, and whenever they offered him water, milk, sugar, or cakes, he thought that he had to get up hurriedly and bow his thanks, stiff, trussed up in his frock-coat, collar, and tie, like a tortoise in its shell, not daring and not being able to turn his head to right or left, and overwhelmed by Frau von Kerrich's innumerable questions and the warmth of her manner frozen by Minna's looks, which he felt were taking in his features, his hands, his movements, his clothes. They made him even more uncomfortable by trying to put him at his ease. Frau von Kerrich, by her flow of words, Minna, by the coquettish eyes which instinctively she made at him to amuse herself. Finally they gave up trying to get anything more from him than bows and monosyllables, and Frau von Kerrich, 
who had the whole burden of the conversation, asked him when she was worn out to play the piano. Much more shy of them than of a concert audience, he played an adagio of Mozart. But his very shyness, the uneasiness which was beginning to fill his heart from the company of the two women, the ingenuous emotion with which his bosom swelled, which made him happy and unhappy, were in tune with the tenderness and youthful modesty of the music, and gave it the charm of spring. Frau von Kerich was moved by it. She said so with the exaggerated words of praise customary among men and women of the world. She was none the less sincere for that, and the very excess of the flattery was sweet, coming from such charming lips. Naughty Minna said nothing, and looked astonished at the boy who was so stupid when he talked, but was so eloquent with his fingers. Jean-Christophe felt their sympathy, and grew bold under it. He went on playing, then half turning towards Minna, with an awkward smile, and without raising his eyes, he said timidly, This is what I was doing on the wall. He played a little piece, in which he had, in fact, developed the musical ideas which had come to him in his favorite spot as he looked into the garden, not, be it said, on the evening when he had seen Minna and Frau von Kerich, for some obscure reason known only to his heart, he was trying to persuade himself that it was so, but long before, and in the calm rhythm of the andante con moto, there were to be found the serene impression of the singing of birds, muttering of beasts, and the majestic slumber of the great trees in the peace of the sunset. The two hearers listened delightedly. When he had finished, Frau von Kerich rose, took his hands with her usual vivacity, and thanked him effusively. Minna clapped her hands and cried that it was admirable and that to make him compose other works as sublime as that, she would have a ladder placed against the wall, so that he might work there at his ease. Frau von Kerich told Jean Christophe not to listen to silly Minna. She begged him to come as often as he liked to her garden, since he loved it, and she added that he need never bother to call on them if he found it tiresome. You need never bother to come and see us, added Minna. Only if you do not come, beware. She wagged her finger in menace. Minna was possessed by no imperious desire that Jean Christophe should come to see her, or should even follow the rules of politeness with regard to herself. But it pleased her to produce a little effect which instinctively she felt to be charming. Jean Christophe blushed delightedly. Frau von Kerich won him completely by the tact with which she spoke of his mother and grandfather, whom she had known. The warmth and kindness of the two ladies touched his heart. He exaggerated their easy urbanity, their worldly graciousness, in his desire to think it heartfelt and deep. He began to tell them, with his naive trustfulness, of his plans and his wretchedness. He did not notice that more than an hour had passed, and he jumped with surprise when a servant came and announced dinner. But his confusion turned to happiness when Frau von Kerich told him to stay and dine with them, like the good friends that they were going to be, and were already. A place was laid for him between the mother and daughter, 
and at table his talents did not show to such advantage as at the piano. That part of his education had been much neglected. It was his impression that eating and drinking were the essential things at table, and not the manner of them. And so Tidy Minna looked at him, pouting and a little horrified. They thought that he would go immediately after supper, but he followed them into the little room and sat with them, and had no idea of going. Minna stifled her yawns, and made signs to her mother. He did not notice them, because he was dumb with his happiness, and thought they were like himself, because Minna, when she looked at him, made eyes at him from habit. And finally, once he was seated, he did not quite know how to get up and take his leave. He would have stayed all night, had not Frau von Kerich sent him away herself, without ceremony, but kindly. He went, carrying in his heart the soft light of the brown eyes of Frau von Kerich and the blue eyes of Minna. On his hands he felt the sweet contact of soft fingers, soft as flowers, and a subtle perfume, which he had never before breathed, enveloped him, bewildered him, brought him almost to swooning. End of section 17